0: All right, well, let's grab our Bibles, if you're not already open there, and go to Matthew chapter uh, 5, we'll look at verses 7 through 12 today. Uh, I don't know how many of you have uh, seen the movie Shrek, anybody? Good way to start a sermon, right? Uh, uh, Did you know they made it into a musical? Have you seen the musical? Uh, So, you know, if you don't know the story, it's kind of a reverse fairy tale, these outcast, the outcast ogre, and he... um, he sort of binds together with some other outcasts, and together they overthrow the evil Lord Farquaad and, and free Dulop. Okay, so you, you, you kind of know the story. But in the musical, there's this kind of anthem that gets repeated a few times that, that uh, it, it sort of underlies everything that's going on. And it's called, if you haven't heard the musical, the, the, the name of the song is... Let your freak flag fly, okay? So uh, bear with me as I read to you some of the lyrics from Let Your Freak Flag Fly. Not something you want to sing on a Sunday morning, but here's what it says. It's time to stop the hiding. It's time to stand up tall, say, hey, world, I'm different. I'm here, splinters and all. Let your freak flag wave. Let your freak flag fly. Never take it down. Wave it way up high. But why should we do that? Because the song goes on to say, we've got magic, we've got power. Who are they to say we're wrong? All the things that make us special are the things that make us strong. Now, uh, it's not a subtle Uh, movie, it's not a subtle message in this musical, Um, it's it's kind of saying, man, you're you're special, you're unique, a very kind of Hollywood thing to say, Uh, don't let anybody sort of rain on your parade, you be you kind of thing, and yet, um, I don't think obviously this is written for Christians, this is not a Christian song, but I think there's some application for us here. Uh, in the West, the church, the, the people of God have lost the cultural wars, right? We are, we are sort of uh, on our heels. We're now playing defense. We're, we're not the, the center of existence the way we used to be. I know this is certainly true in America, and yet here's what I would say. That's not such a bad thing. In fact, I think sometimes when the church is in the majority is when we are at our worst. When the church is not the outcast, when the church is not freakish, when the church is not weird... Right? There's something wrong with us. When we're seen as just kind of normal, everything's good, we're, we're the center of power and all that, that's when the church morphs into something that I think is, uh, is wrong, is, is something that can become poisonous. And so, of course, we've seen that over the years. Uh, well, I, th- I think this is part of what I, I, wanna, I want you to see this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. So the church is now at a place... In, in the West, and I think this is true of, of everywhere in the West, where it's kind of a relic. right? The church in some ways is looked upon by the culture at large as this artifact of this this past, like, it doesn't feel relevant anymore. It doesn't feel like it's the center. And that's, that's unfortunate in some ways. It's, it's, it's good in others. And, and one of the reasons it's unfortunate is because people's hearts haven't changed. They still want to find love. They still want peace. They still want meaning. They're still looking for purpose. And that's something that our Bible and our faith has something a lot to say about, right? How do you find those things? Where should we be looking for those things? But unfortunately, we've not done a very good job of stewarding that. And so what happens, right? Very often, what we've tried to do is say, okay, well, in order to sort of get back in the society's good graces, what should we do? We should try to sort of mimic them. We should sort of get as close to them. We should be kind of a lame religious version of the culture around us. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is where I just, I just want, I don't want to be too offensive. I don't want to, I don't want to be weird or strange. No, but what, what I want to be is kind of, I want to, I want to make, make, make Christianity cool and make Jesus relevant. And I wonder if that's what we need at all. So we, in some ways, the church, and again, I'm not speaking about village church. I don't know you. I'm saying, I'm, I certainly see this in America, that we are at our worst when we're in the majority and we're also at our worst, we're trying to copy the culture around us, right? John Stott, I think he says it best. He says this, no comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, listen to this, but you are no different from anybody else, right? Like, like in other words, we should be different. We should be unique. We should be freaks, we should let our freak flag fly, right? There, there should be a sense in which we would say what makes us special is what makes us strong. Well, this is exactly what's going on. If I were to say Christians should be weird, I would say the Sermon on the Mount is a weird sermon. Right behind the Sermon on the Mount, almost in every corner and nook and cranny of the Sermon on the Mount is this message of Christian, we ought to be different. There ought to be something strange, unique, want to call it weird, whatever you want to say, this ought to be a reflection of us. So the Sermon on the Mount comes along and Jesus is going to say things like, in this, in this message, repent, change your mind, do, act, believe things differently than the culture around you. In fact, smack dab in the middle of the sermon in Matthew chapter 6 verse 8 Jesus is going to say this which I think is a theme of the entire sermon do not be like them meaning the surrounding culture don't be like them we should be different next week you'll hear let your light shine be salts. There should be some difference in us. We should we should be reflecting this weird character. And I don't say that with any any sense of, of of you know disrespect. There should be this weird character of God that comes shining through the Christian. So the entire sermon does this. Everywhere you go in this sermon, I mean, this is weird. This is strange. This is countercultural, and that's a good thing. That's what we're called. We're called to be because. Because our strength is not found in being like the culture. Our strength is found in being different. Now, by the way, I don't mean offensive, right? I hope you understand that. I mean, there's just something unique about us. People look and go, you're different. And that's what's happening here. So it's this weird sermon, but it's a weird sermon that talks about you being weird people. I mean, the Beatitudes. I think there's a lot of people that think the Beatitudes, we should just sort of, you know, paint them on a wall. Aren't these nice sayings um, I heard Russell Moore say one time, I don't know if you know who he is, but Russell Moore said one time, unfortunately, many Christians find comfort in things that should disturb them, and they're disturbed by things that should comfort them. In other words, sort of for example, he'd say, like, the doctrine of election should comfort you. It disturbs most Christians. The Sermon on the Mount should disturb you. It comforts most. Right? This is a disturbing sermon if we're hearing it correctly. Correctly. If we're hearing about what Jesus is saying, right? So, Jesus is gonna look at, let's say, these Beatitudes, these first 12 verses, and he's gonna say, Listen, here's, here's the issue. This is what the heart of a Christian looks like. This is what a Christian looks like from the inside out. This is the motive, it's the gospel motivations that should drive you as a believer in Jesus. If somebody says, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I order my life around the gospel. He's saying, okay, then you ought to see these ought to be some of the things. These ought to be the impulses of the heart of a Christian. Okay, So I think Andrew took you for, through the first four. Last week, we're going to look at the last four. But let me just say one other introductory comment. What Jesus is after here is, is he wants to elevate being before doing. You follow me? In other words, he wants you to understand, wants me to understand that what's most important is who we are, not what we do. So our action's unimportant. Can we just do as long as I am? No, because what I do flows out of who I am, right? So it's not that my actions, my behavior are unimportant. They are important, I am commanded to behave in certain ways, but it's where does that come from? Is it external conformity or is there something coming from within? This is what Jesus is driving at. So I'm someone that is before I do something, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He says, you are not meant to control your Christianity. Hear that? You're not meant to control your Christianity. Your Christianity is meant to control you. It's being before doing. So this is what's going on. This is, this is the Beatitudes are shining a light into your heart and asking you some penetrating questions, really penetrating questions. In fact, I dare say that if we're all reading this right, it will crush you. It will crush your pride. It will bring you to an end of yourself. It will make you say, how, how in the world? Who could be like this? And so let's just begin. And we're going to we're going to sort of you could take each of these and and ask a question through them and that's what we'll do. I want to ask you just four remaining questions from the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the first question. Are you merciful? So look at verse 7 again. And and look how Jesus says it. He says, "Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy." Seems simple, right? This is what it is, but what is mercy? Definitions are everything, right? So so mercy we could say is this. It is Pity, if you were to do it as a formula, you'd go mercy equals pity plus action. It's not pity alone, right? It's not just I'm a bleeding heart. I feel bad for people. Oh, those poor people, that poor guy, that poor woman. It's pity, and then I do something with that pity. It causes me to act in a certain way. So that's what mercy is, and and, and I'd say in the context of Scripture, certainly what Jesus has been talking about, being poor in spirit and hungering after righteousness, all those things, it is a pity for the sinful state of people and wanting to do something to relieve the suffering of sin. Are you merciful? Now Jesus comes along and he's going to give us these sort of illustrations like here's what mercy looks like when it's good and here's when you don't have mercy. So if you recall, if you've read the Gospels, if you went to the book of Luke chapter 10, you don't have to go there right now, but we run into one of his parables which is the parable of what the good Samaritan. And the good Samaritan, what happens? You've got, this, you've got this Jew who's going along a road. He's going up, I think, between Jericho and Jerusalem, and, and, and some robbers sort of pounce upon him, and they beat him, and they rob him of everything, and they leave him for dead, and he's bleeding on the side of the road, and people begin to pass by on this very busy road between these two places, and they look down, and one of them's a Levite, and so he's Jewish, and he realizes that guy might be dead, and if I touch him, then I might be unclean, then i got to go through all these ritual, so I'm going to keep going. A priest comes by even worse. No way can I touch this guy. I can't help him because that would make me impure and clean. Got to keep going. And finally, you get a Samaritan, which by the way, I hope you understand, is just absolutely scandalous for Jesus to say this. I mean, this this is, you know, in Northern Ireland, of course, sectarianism. This is exactly what's happening. Right. This is, this is a Jew and a Samaritan. They hated one another, and, and the Samaritan is the one who stops, and what happens? He sees this man, and he feels pity, but he doesn't stop. His pity turns into action. He picks him up. He binds his wounds. He takes him to an inn. He lets him off. He pays the bill. It's pity plus action equals mercy. This is Jesus saying this is what this looks like. He gives us another example, a negative example. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? If you don't remember, it's the story where the king, he, you know, this, he just Jesus says, let me tell you a story. It's about a king. There was a king, and people owed him a lot of money, so one day he decided, I'm going to settle up all my accounts. So he calls to him a servant, and, and, and Jesus says, this servant owed, G, owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, that means nothing to us. Until you understand, let's do it this way. I want you to do a little calculation in your head. Think about how much you make in a year. Okay, I mean, this, is, this is what Jesus is saying. Think about how much you make in a year. Multiply that number by 20. Okay, ready? And multiply that number by 10,000. Now, now, the point is this. It's not possible to pay off. He has a debt that in 10,000 lifetimes... He couldn't pay off. So what does he do? He comes, the king says, pay up, right? Here goes. I'm in, and if you don't pay up, I'm taking you and your whole family and you're going to jail. You're going to prison. And you will, you'll rot there the rest of your life. The servant falls down and says one of the most ridiculous things in all of Scripture. He says, Lord, he says to the king, please give me time and I'll pay it all back. Right? Not, not possible. And the king, it says this, felt pity for the man and says to him, I tell you what, just forgive it all. Now, Just just feel this for a moment. I, I mean, what if you went home today and slipped under your door, you walk through your front door, and you pick up something, and it says this, and you can verify this is true. Let's say it says, your car, your house... Every debt you owe, all your credit cards are zero. How would you feel? Like in America, I can talk about student debt, right? Because then students are like, oh my gosh, that'd be just unbelievable. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? There's this, there's this like, like joy, there's this levity, there's, there's something you feel like a weight's just been pulled. Imagine this, this guy has now been relieved of all of this, an impossible debt, no way to pay it, could legitimately go to jail, spend the rest of the time rotting in jail, and the king says, forgiven, it's wiped out. And Jesus says he walks out of there and he runs into to another guy who owes him a um, hundred talents or a uh, hundred denarii. And a hundred denarii, do this calculation, take what you make per year and divide it by three. That's basically what you got, okay? That's a lot of money. That's not insignificant. All of a sudden, I'd love if somebody would pay me that, right? If, if they owe it to me. But it says that this this wicked servant, says the guy who owes him a 100 denarii, says, pay it up right now. And it says he begins to choke him. I don't know why Jesus added this detail. Right, But he starts to choke him until finally he says, nope, He's, I can't pay. But he says, give me more time. No, you're not going to get more time. Throws the guy in jail. Other servants see us. They run back to the king, the original king, and say to him, listen to what happened. And the original king calls that wicked servant and says, I can't believe. And here's the point that Jesus makes at the very end. He says this. Here's coming from the mouth of the king. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father, here's Jesus' conclusion, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. L-l-l- let's say it this way. Here's a man, here, here's somebody, and Jesus says, how is it How is it if you've been forgiven this massive debt that you can't forgive a fraction of that? That's the point. That's mercy. In fact, let's say it this way. The degree to which you are merciful to others, as a Christian, um, is the degree to which you truly understand how much mercy you've been shown. See, one of the reasons we're not merciful. Why? We don't really get it. My sin feels small. My sin feels insignificant. Right? Everybody else's sin feels large. So Jesus says... Are you merciful? See, ultimately, ultimately, Jesus Himself is the merciful one. Jesus Himself is the one who goes, I look and I have pity combined with action. I see you in your sin. I see that you're incapable of paying back. I see that you can't do what you're being asked to do. So I will forgive you all the debt of sin, all the debt that you owe God for not living up to His perfect requirements. I'll come, I'll pay the price. I'll forgive you. And so what happens? We've been shown incredible mercy. So, so, so maybe, maybe one of the things for us to do in terms of application is to look at this and say, okay, so, so, so mercy, if mercy looks at someone and says, I have the power, I have pity, and I have the power to do something about it. If mercy does that, then, then how merciful are we? Like, let's say it this way. It's not money now. Let's take it out of the realm of money. You'd say, somebody in my life owes me an apology. Somebody in my life needs to right a wrong. And I have the power. over You hold something over them. And what does mercy say? I'll forgive. I'll do some. Imagine how many marriages could be mended. How many friendships could be restored? How many uh, families could be healed? Simply if we were the merciful people that Jesus calls us to be. Are you merciful? All right, well, let's keep going. He says the second thing is, are you pure in heart? See that? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. An interesting way of saying this. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, again, I want you to see this. Christ is concerned with your heart. He's concerned that behavior flows out of a heart that's been changed. The heart is at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. So remember, Jesus is going to come along and and say in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Everybody thinks, I'm okay then, because I haven't done that. Oh, but I tell you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, then you've committed adultery. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you have hatred towards somebody else in your heart, you're a murderer. So everything is elevated, everything is, is pushed inside where we understand now everything comes from the heart. The Sermon on the Mount never says anything close to blessed are the outwardly religious, blessed are the well-behaved, blessed are the moral. It doesn't. It says, blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus goes straight after the heart. Christianity is not simply, right? And this is something your culture, my culture needs to hear. It's not simply external behavior. We do behave. We are good neighbors. People will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. But it starts because our heart has been transformed. So what's the heart? Well, I think we'd say biblically the heart is the real you. It's the center of your personality. It's who you are, right? It is is the fountainhead of all of life. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, listen to what he says. Remember this? He says in verse 17, Do you see that whatever goes in the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. I don't think Jesus is saying this is a complete list. I think he's saying, listen, everything flows from your heart. This is the problem. So if you ask Jesus, what's the problem? What's the problem of the world? What's what's my problem? He would say it's your heart. The culture is going to say things like this. It's a lack of education. Really? Like, Do we believe this? Like some of the most educated people in the world are some of the most wicked. Osama bin Laden was highly educated. Hitler was educated. We could go on and on about people that have been educated. Politicians, some of the worst scheming politicians, are highly educated people. Well, maybe it's environment. (laughs) Really, right? Some of the people that come out of the most privileged areas are are, are some of the the most wretched Adam and Eve lived in perfection and rebelled, right? Jesus says, it's the heart. Here's the problem. You have, this is not just sin has permeated the human heart. It's it's something that's deep within. So, so, So Charles Spurgeon, I love this. He says, sin is not a splash of mud upon a man's exterior. It is filth. Generated within himself. That's a weird thing to say in our culture. That's a weird thing to believe. I was on the plane a few weeks ago. I was coming back from Texas and um, I sat down next to a guy and, and I started reading my Bible. And it was one of these, this doesn't happen to me very often, honestly. And he looks over and he goes, Hey, what are you reading there? I'm like, Hey, uh, my Bible? And he goes, Oh, could you tell me about it? Well, sure, right? So I started talking to this guy. It turns out he's he's Buddhist. He's from Cambodia. He literally knew nothing about the Bible. We began to talk about kind of the difference comparative religion, you know, Buddhist versus Christianity. And, and this was his argument, right? It's an environmental thing. It's an education thing. When I said that here's the difference between your, your religion and what Christianity teaches, Christianity says the problem is in the human heart. He just refused to believe it. I cannot believe that it comes from that place, right? I want I want to think that I can do something about this and I can't cleanse out my heart. And that's what I was saying. But but you can, you can't, Jesus can, that's the whole point. Right? Jesus comes along and cleanses. See, see, we 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 don't like to think of it as being in the heart. And so we'll say, we say kind of ridiculous things. We we talk about how, you know, or Disney, we'll talk about things like follow your heart, right? Every Disney movie out there, just do what your heart tells you to do. It will always lead you in the right path. Every murderer, every mass murderer, every dictator, everything in the world can be traced back to somebody who's saying, I just followed my heart. I was doing exactly what my heart wanted to do. Nobody has ever been a reluctant dictator. Nobody has ever been reluctant in committing sin. We do that because our heart says, you love this. You want to do this. You go to a funeral, right? I have yet to go to a funeral where, you know, you know this person, uh, did not live any kind of moral life at all. I mean, this could be a man who beat his wife every night and abused his children and drank himself to drunkenness every night and cussed like a sailor. I mean, we could go on and on, and somebody would have the audacity to stand up at that funeral and say something to the effect of, but at bottom, he was a good man. Like somehow, really? Really? Like, is it possible that if a, 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 a pipe is, is pumping out sewage that we can say, yes, but at bottom, there's pure water? No. It's pumping out exactly what's coming from the source. So here's the point Jesus is making. Your heart must be made pure. This is a supernatural thing that has to happen. Your heart must be cleansed. So, so, so he goes on to talk about being pure in heart. These are those who are changed by Christ. This is somebody who's poor in spirit, right? This is somebody who mourns over their sin. This is somebody who's meek. That is, they see themselves as God sees them, no more, no less. They're humble. In other words, this is a supernatural gift of God. The purity of heart that Jesus talks about can't be done on my own. Jesus has to do it. So, so what does purity mean? It means clean. It means undefiled, right? Nothing impure will ever enter the presence of God. It means holy, sincere, right? That is that there is absolutely no hypocrisy. Everything I say is exactly what's going on inside of me. My behavior, my beliefs are all lined up with one another, the psalmist in Psalm 86, is going to pray to God. Listen to how he prays. He says, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. I mean, there's an admission right there. God, my heart is divided. It's just divided all the time. So I need you to unite me so that I can worship you properly. I mean, does anybody, anybody look at those things and say, yeah, I'm, I'm pure in heart? Nobody does. So so we recognize that this is something that has to happen to us and we recognize that the only way this can happen, the only one we could ever say was pure in heart, in fact the only one, I'm sure Andrew told you this, the only one who can ever fulfill the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes or even one of the Beatitudes is Christ. So when Paul comes along and says, here's the good news, we have been united with Christ in his death, and therefore were united to him in his resurrection, this idea of being united with Christ, this is how I'm made pure in heart. Because I'm united with the one who is perfectly pure. Right, that's it. So am I pure in heart? The, sort of the secondary question of that is, is, have I been united to Christ by faith? Because if you have, then you are pure in heart. Okay, but then he says, if you're pure in heart... You'll see God. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, now some commentators say that that word for ought to be translated as because. So, so think about this. Blessed are the pure in heart because they shall see God. Now, maybe what that's saying is that, that that fact that I'm going to see God creates a purity in me. I know I'm going to be held accountable. I think that could be part of it. But I think the other thing, it could be saying, no... Blessed are the pure in heart because in other words, in other words, blessed are the pure in heart. They must be pure if they're going to see God. They have to be. And so Jesus, I'm united to him, he makes me pure, and now I can stand before a holy God, pure, righteous, without spot, without blemish, all because of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart. Number three, are you a peacemaker? So I'll move through this one quickly, but verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, peacemaker, just like in English, in the Greek, it's also the combination of two words. Peace and maker, it's peace and like doer, peace and worker. That's the idea. Maker, that's fine. Are you, in other words, are you somebody who brokers peace? Are you somebody that people look at you, a wife, a husband, a family, and says, you know what? Because of them, there's more peace in this home. Because of them, there's more peace in the neighborhood. Because of them, there's more peace in the workplace. Because of them, there's more peace in the schoolyard. All of those things because this person is a broker of peace. Why? Here again, it's what's going on inside is now coming out. That is that now I am I am like Jesus, a son of God. I, I, have, I have been made new and now, now the character of God is beginning to work its way out of me. That is, God is a peacemaker. God's the great reconciler, right? God's the one who brings us into relationship with one another. He reconciles enemies. So he says, if that's true... And if you're going to be a son of God, a daughter of God, then one of the ways we'll do that is by being people who make peace, being people who look for opportunities to reconcile people one to another. Right? How key is that? How, how big is that in this neighborhood? How big is that in this city? How big is that in your home that we reflect our sonship, our daughterhood, Simply by being people who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Okay. Number four, are you persecuted? Now, now this is... This is amazing to me. Look at look at verse 10 again. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now who talks like this? Blessed are you, have you ever, ever in your wildest dreams thought, when I am reviled because I'm a Christian, when people don't like me, when I stand up for my convictions, any of those things, and people speak evil things against me, if they were to publish in the newspaper, Village Church is an evil place, would anybody go, what a blessing? (laughs) Praise God for that. That's the idea. Now, this is so punk rock, right? This is so radical. This is so crazy that we would talk like this. It's weird. It's different. It's totally unique. Nobody else talks like this. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. See, if the Sermon on the Mount hasn't pushed against your heart yet, maybe here's where it is. Now, now why would Jesus put this at the end of the Beatitudes? Because if you genuinely live out the Beatitudes, you will be persecuted. That's weird to think. If you are a peacemaker, if you're pure in heart, Right? If you're poor in spirit, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you're merciful, all these things, they don't get you friends of the world. You're a weirdo, you're a freak if you live like this. Because you don't conform, right? You are not living by their rules. You're not worshiping their God. You are swimming up the stream of culture. And people don't want that. We learn at a very young age to go with the flow. Dress the way others dress so nobody makes fun of you. Like, look the way they look. All these things. You do not want to stand out, right? And we kind of learn this. So, so if I'm going I'm to keep my head down, I don't want to make any waves... And Jesus says, wait a second, don't you understand? Blessed are you when you are persecuted. See, Jesus modeled the Beatitudes perfectly. Perfectly. And he, he was killed for it. He was hated for it. He was hated because of his righteousness. Listen, living out the Sermon on the Mount, as Andrew walks you through the Sermon on the Mount over the next several weeks, months, it won't make you friends won't in some ways it will make you enemies I mean Paul says he said to Timothy Timothy who was this timid protege of Paul he says Timothy you got to recognize something I got to splash cold water in your face that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted not might be so it makes us ask the question, have I ever been persecuted? Have I ever suffered for my faith? Um, who was it? Wrote a book, and he, he, here, here's the quote. He says, all around the world, Christians fear the raised fist, right? Right? I go to Afghanistan, I go to Iran, I go to, to India, I go to places all around the world, they fear the raised fist. In the West, Christians fear the raised eyebrow. Right? I, I, don't, I don't want that look. I, I'm afraid of being I want to be accepted. When's the last time you took a stand where the Bible takes a stand? And people didn't like you for it. Did you walk away going "woohoo"? Right? That's awesome. I got persecuted today for my faith because Jesus says, "Blessed are you, flourishing are you." This is what the abundant life looks like. See, this is what he's after in the Sermon on the Mount, living this out. Now, now let me just end with this. Why? Why is suffering? Why is persecution? Why does it seem that as I read through Scripture, it is part and parcel of the Christian life? It's part and parcel of walking with Jesus. Why? Well, let me, let me give you just, I think we say a lot about this. Let me give you three things. Number one, because Scripture is going to teach us that suffering, persecution, hardship actually drives the roots of our faith deeper. It just does, right? So, so you've got Paul saying, listen, don't you know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It actually is producing something. James is going to come along, right? And say, count it. All, there it is again. All joy when you face trials of various, that word means multicolored, variegated, all these different kinds of trials, suffering, persecution. Count it all joy right for we know that the testing of our faith this is what it produces that like let that testing let it have its full effect don't don't stop it don't try to get out from under it understand it's doing something it's going to bring about perfection in you it deepens, it drives the roots. That resistance, I remember hearing one time about a, tr- those, you know, they, 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 what's that thing, the, the, the geodesic dome or whatever where they grew a whole habitat inside of there and they grew this habitat and there were trees growing, it was beautiful, they thought it was idyllic and then the, the trees just started kind of falling over under their own weight, why? Because they had never experienced any kind of prevailing or adverse wind that made them drive their roots deeper. This is you. This is me. God is saying, don't you understand? I mean, this is the great thing about God. He, there's not one. He's the most efficient being in the universe. He takes everything that happens in your life and so I'm gonna use it for your good, for my glory. I'm gonna drive your roots deeper. Richard Foster He says, the desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Deep. You ever known somebody like this? You ever been around a Christian that there just seems to be like this really deep river like running through their soul? I bet you, I can almost guarantee you, that's a Christian that has suffered. That's a Christian that's been through hardship. And there's an anchor there, Right? There's an anchor that says, man, it's not, I'm not going anywhere. There's a depth of character. That's the first thing, that God uses it to drive our roots deeper. I think the second reason you might say, why does suffering come? Because it separates fake from real it actually shows where you stand on this whole thing called Christianity, where you stand with Jesus. You ever noticed, just just read the gospel sometime and watch what Jesus does. He'll say, man, the crowds are thronging to him. He can't beat him away with a stick, right? I mean, he's feeding people. There's happy meals everywhere. People are like, you're kidding me. How does this, you know, this is a miracle worker. We're so excited about this. This guy heals people, of course. Jesus has a billion Facebook friends. Everybody's liking him. And then what will Jesus do? He'll go, uh, we need to call the herd. So let me, hey, everybody, come here. Anybody want to come after me? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you want to be my follower, you'll eat my flesh, drink my blood. Well, that has a way of people going, yeah, I'm out. That's where you and I part ways and the and the and the the herd thins right i mean jesus jesus stands up right you want you take up your cross this, this instrument of torture, I mean, this, would, this was, we, we wear crosses around our neck, right? You, you understand, this would have been so bizarre to a first century Christian, to a first century Jew, that you, you didn't even talk about, you didn't even say the word cross, meaning crucifixion in public. It was impolite in polite circles to talk like this. And Jesus says, take up that cross, follow me, take up the instrument of torture and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. That's weird. That's freakish. That's countercultural. And that's what he calls us to be. But the last thing he says, I'd say, is that, that why are we supposed to suffer? Because Christ suffered. Let me, let me say it this way. Sin took our world and turned it upside down, right? Literally, like, like, like this is how the Bible's gonna talk. Something so radical happened at the fall that it took the, the created order and turned it upside down. We, we, we like to think that, you know, maybe we'll talk about Jesus coming around and Jesus sort of turns the world, no, no, no. Jesus turns the world right side up. Jesus comes along and says, This is the way things are supposed to be. But in an upside down world, the way to greatness is humility. The way to a crown is a cross, right? The the, the, the way to strength is through suffering because everything's different in this world. And so he comes and says, Look, I suffered. I went through it. I walked through the valleys. I did all this, and I'm inviting you to come with me, because on the other side of this is the greatness that the world is searching for. So suffering is ordained of God in this world. Village church, let me say something. If you're going to make an impact in this community, if you're going to make an impact in your home, in your workplace, there will be suffering. There will be hardship. There will be bumps along the road that you personally have to take, that you as a church have to take. But what you need to realize is like, like that's Jesus going, hey guys, this is this is normal. And it's okay. And not if it happens, when it happens, be ready to go, okay, God. You 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 told us. I mean, so much of the Gospels is Jesus saying that. In fact, he says, if everybody likes you, be afraid. Because they all like the false prophets. You know who false prophets are? False prophets aren't weird. False prophets say exactly what people want them to say. They give you what you want to hear. They don't push back on you. They don't tell you this is wrong. They don't talk about sin. They don't confront unrighteousness and evil. They don't talk about a poverty of spirit. And Jesus does. He says, if that's the way they talk about you, you ought to be concerned. But if you're getting some pushback in your life, if going home today, maybe for some of you, it's like, man, I just know my wife, my husband, my kids, some family just hate that I'm a Christian, I'm doing this church thing, whatever it is, Jesus says, rejoice, be glad. Great for, do you see this? Here's the reason. (laughs) Like, for great, your reward isn't here. Your reward is coming. And all that that suffering is, is a whisper from God going, I've got something for you. I've got reward. I've got wonderful things in store for you. Hang in there. Let's pray.